All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to stand together for the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we'll start in verse 6. We are looking this morning at the imitation of Christ. The imitation of Christ. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6. These are the words of God. Now these things, brothers, I have applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to go beyond what is written, so that no one of you will become puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled, and you have already become rich. You have ruled without us, and how I wish that you had ruled indeed, so that we also might rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, and to angels, and to men. For we are fools for the sake of Christ, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are glorious, but we are without honor. To this present hour we hunger and thirst, and are poorly clothed, and roughly treated, and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to plead. We have become as the scum of the world, the grime of all things, even until now. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and who will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some have become puffed up as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall know not the words of those who are puffed up, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Let us pray. Our Father and gracious God, guide us, we ask, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, thus far in our study, Paul has been building up to this very moment. The first four chapters are several mini-sermons, and when you put them together, really, uh, those four chapters become one long essay. He has dealt with the distinction between worldly wisdom and the wisdom of the cross. He has gone through considerable pains to confront the Corinthian church on their innumerable misunderstandings regarding Christian doctrine and fellowship. fellowship. In fact, uh, Paul has, with rhetorical genius, corrected their misdoings by getting to the very heart of the matter. The Corinthians had been imitating the world instead of imitating the Christ. They had been imitating the world instead of imitating the Word. They should have been more mature, but because they were too busy jostling for notoriety in the church, Paul has to tell them that they are, in fact, quite immature. They're quite immature. As a nurturing mother to them, Paul gave them the milk of the word, expecting them to grow into solid food. 
Now, as a strong, caring, masculine father, Paul needs to offer correction, reminding them that they stand not on the merits of themselves, but on the merits of Christ and His sovereign grace. So in our text this morning, Paul will remind them that Scripture sets the agenda for all of life. Scripture sets the agenda for all of life. Our daily living is sustained by the gifts of God's grace. Scripture sets the agenda. Our daily living is sustained by the gifts of God's grace. Pride and selfishness are diametrically opposed to the way of the cross. Christianity requires great sacrifice. Christianity requires great sacrifice. It's built in. If Christianity doesn't look like sacrificial living, it's not Christianity. And he will tell them that immature Christianity looks like self-exaltation. He will tell them that younger Christians ought to do whatever they can to learn from more mature Christians. And all of us are called to imitate Christ. And, And being a good role model in helping disciple others, he says, often looks like parenting. In a sense, Paul's goal here in bringing this all together is to show the Corinthians what apostleship looks like and consequently what they should look like. So let's look through our text. Verse 6 through 13 is a unit, so we'll deal with that first. In verse 6, Paul tells them that the ultimate problem isn't between Paul and Apollos. That's what they were, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. They were putting a wedge between these two teachers. And Paul says, actually, that's, there's no problem here at all. And that's what they were saying. But the problem is them. <laughs> Again, sometimes you just listen to people and that you, the, the problem's clear. It's more an issue of them than it is the recipient of whatever it is they're saying. And he's been speaking about himself and Apollos, but he says here in verse 6, only, only in a way to illustrate the matter. He's illustrating the issues by bringing up Paul and Apollos repeatedly. And the point is, though, he says that none of us are to go beyond what is written. A favorite verse of mine. None of us are to go beyond what is written. Because when we move past the authority of Scripture, people will become puffed up, he says, and bitter strife and quarreling with one another begins to set in. So don't, be, don't go beyond what is written, he says. Stop going past that. Don't, you don't need Moses and then a little bit of Plato. <laughs> you don't need to, to go beyond the Scriptures. It's what God has revealed to us. The congregation had boasted about their own self-perceptions. They thought themselves to be wise and immensely important. Uh, you know, they, they, People knew who they were. They were very prominent. Uh, so-and-so teacher last week came through, and, and he knew who I was. He called me by name. I'm really important. That sort of stuff. And the Corinthians had moved beyond, in a sense, they had moved beyond the authority of Scripture, and they had established their own authority in its place. People that do this think themselves to be smarter than God, more righteous than God. And the only way to pop the balloon of self-inflated pride is with the needle of Scripture. So Paul reminds them of Scripture, and then he gives a little sarcasm, which is just wonderful. He lays it on thick here. In verse 7, he begins essentially saying, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? He goes on, well, what, what do you have that you did not receive? 
Rhetorical question, what's the answer? What do you guys have, cross and crown, that you did not receive? Nothing. That's the answer. Nothing. Okay, then. <laughs> Lay on more sarcasm. If you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? As if it was something of your doing. Why do you boast as if it's something of your doing when nothing that you have was yours? It was given to you. In other words, you've been given the grace of God in Christ. Do you really think that grace is meant to inflate your ego? You know, it's, it's again the age-old problem of being really proud about your humility. Paul says, you, you have no bragging rights at all. Everything you have, including your own life, is a gift from God. Everyone owes his life to God, so why puff yourself up thinking that you're a self-made man? The grace of God flattens everything out. The grace of God flattens everything out. No one can ultimately take credit for anything. In context, he's really talking about teaching. That's kind of what these fighting over teachers and, and all of that. And kind of what he's put, essentially saying here is, well, bad, bad teaching isn't something that should make anyone boast. If it's bad theology, why boast in it, right? But good teaching is God's gift. So don't boast in that either because it's God's gift. And this may very well be the crux of Paul's argument. It's the grace of God, people. <laughs> Pay attention. It's the grace of God. As the saying goes, uh, I heard Coach Harbaugh say this, don't think that just because you were born on third base that it means you hit a triple. <laughs> In verse 8, he goes right after them some more. They're filled. They're rich. They are ruling as philosopher kings. And Paul says, well, if only that were the case, then the apostles might rule with you. I wish you were ruling. I'd ride on your coattails, he says. <laughs> Implied is the fact that the Corinthians were self-made people who moved on from the apostles. They had outgrown their need for Paul. They didn't need him. And thus, the problem with that is they outgrew the Scriptures. They had become respectable, growing and outgrowing their need for any further correction. And to be clear... Paul scolds them for their self-inflated obsession with worldly philosophy, and it's because it's something that's absolutely contrary to the King Jesus gospel. And their problem is, uh, one writer says it this way, they are uncritically perpetuating the norms and values of the pagan culture around them. March for life. They are uncritically they're not thinking about it. They're perpetuating the norms and values of the pagan culture around them. Self-deception in Corinth had become so bad that Paul needs to dislodge it with a bit of sarcastic bite. And he wants to bring about some humility. You guys are filled. You guys are rich. You're ruling. Man, this is awesome. They're high and lifted up. But what are the apostles? Well, he's going to tell us in verses 9 through 13. In comparison, he says... The apostles are dead last. They are condemned, condemned to death, becoming a spectacle to the world. While the Corinthians are at the top of the social ladder, the apostles are being carried away as prisoners in the Roman parade of victory. That's what a spectacle means. Uh, I had a chance to visit Rome back in circa 2009. And you can see the Ark of Titus and the menorah that's there when Titus destroyed Jerusalem. They would bring the soldiers back 
and then following the soldiers would be the plunder, and then at the very end would be enslaved captives. And eventually this parade of victory, because you know you didn't have Twitter back then, you had to show everybody, you, 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 the, the prisoners the next day would be executed. Paul says, that's us. You guys are up front with Caesar. We're in the back going to die soon. That's what a spectacle means. In the eyes of the world and to angels and to men, Paul says, they're being carried off into further suffering. Quite the contrast here between Paul and the Corinthians. Paul heaps it on them some more in verse 10. The apostles are fools for the sake of Christ, but they're the wise ones. The apostles are weak in comparison to the strong teaching of the Greek philosophers and the Corinthians thus, because they love that, they're strong too. The apostles are dishonored, but boy, the Corinthians, they have all the glory. You can feel the sarcasm dripping off the page here. What Paul does here is point out that his manner of, li of living is consistent and in line with the message of the cross. How Paul is living is following the cross, following Christ. But the Corinthians are chasing after a manner of living completely opposed to the gospel. They like cheap grace, Bonhoeffer calls it. They like cheap grace. Paul is about to deal with the, the sexual immorality and, and dysfunction in the church, and he's going to get to that in chapter 5. Lord willing, we'll cover that chapter next week. It's a short one, but he, he's about to go right into it. And now he's just laying it on thick. Here is the reality of the situation. Verse 11, the apostles are hungry and thirsty. They're virtually naked and exposed. They're treated poorly and without a home. They labor with their hands. By the way, uh, laboring with your hands in Greek culture was a despised profession. The, the, you needed to be smarter and like the philosophers, and then you were viewed as really important. But if you're just out working with your hands, then you were despised. But that's what, what did Paul do? He worked with his hands. He was a laborer. He made tents. So they labor with, with their hands, and when they are reviled, the apostle blesses the revilers. They don't repay evil with evil. When the apostles are persecuted, they have to endure. The Corinthians aren't enduring anything but their own abysmal pride, but they have to, to endure for the sake of the gospel, verse 12. Verse 13, when, when slandered, they plead. When slandered, they plead and, and try to reason with people and persuade them to the gospel. They are, he says, the scum of the world, the grime of all things, which is a good translation. They are, in other words, what he's saying is they are living examples of the cross. These things aren't misfortunes, but identifying marks, says one writer. They're identifying marks of the, of the authenticity of his apostleship because they manifest his conformity to Christ's sufferings. He says in Colossians how he's filling up what is lacking. Not that Christ's atonement isn't sufficient, but there's more of that to take on, and Paul takes it on. So grime, well, the word scum refers to what is left after you clean a dirty pot or a dish. And grime communicates the dirt from one's shoes. That's what they are. And as people of the cross, what, what else can we expect in a world that hates the Lord Jesus Christ? People of the cross are people of the cross. It's a cross. 
bloodied and condemned in the eyes of the world. The Corinthians would find all of this to be contemptible rubbish. They had nothing but contempt for him. And, but Paul says this is cruciform living. This is what living looks like in this culture. We have to look like Jesus Christ. We have to look like him. Paul says he's just being a faithful steward. I love one writer put it this way. Paul is saying in the strongest possible terms that to be a follower of Christ is to share his destiny of being scorned and rejected by the world. Having confronted the Corinthians, Paul wants something else to be clear there in verse 14. He's not trying to shame them, but to admonish them, which is a fine line in parenting because you want to rebuke and correct and shame can be a grace, but you're trying to build up, not tear down. And that can be a difficult thing in parenting. But they are his children, he says. I'm not trying to shame you. I, there's a goal here. You're my kids. I want you to grow up. I want you to learn. And he's pointing out something that should be glaringly obvious. But because self-deception runs deep, it's not obvious to them. They have had countless tutors in Christ. Countless but they don't have many fathers. In fact, the, Paul's establishment of the gospel in Corinth made him a father. He's a spiritual father to them, and they are his spiritual children. That's in verse 15. Now, these tutors were people, tutors in the ancient world, they were people who came to help the parents instruct their children. They're almost like babysitters, except for you're just part of the family. You don't, you don't leave. You're not there for four hours on a Friday night and then get to go. Tutors were these people who came along essentially almost like a glorified nanny to some degree, but they had a wider scope of ministry. It wasn't just cleaning the house or helping educate the children. Your job as a tutor was to help grow them up and to be responsible people. So Paul says, you've had tons of them. You've had tons of them. And Paul, though, he is a father to them. He is their father their very existence depends on his father status. And because of this, Father Paul, if we might say, calls on them to imitate his life, which is an imitation of Jesus Christ. Everything he has just said in comparing the Corinthian way to the way of the cross has been exemplified in his life. His whole argument descends here. And for this reason, Paul says in verse 17 that he's, he's going to send Timothy to them. Partly why I wanted to read 2 Corinthians 1, because Paul ends up writing 2 Corinthians, which is really 3 Corinthians, with Timothy. But he's going to send Timothy to them, and Timothy is going to remind them who Paul really is, what Paul's really teaching. And he's, he sends him, though, so that they understand what discipleship truly looks like, which he does in all the churches, he says. So apparently some were puffed up. They were arrogantly saying that Paul wasn't going to come back to Corinth and you know, he, he abandoned them, sort of woe is me, but they were more prideful about that. But they, they knew which gospel was taught in all the churches. Paul was not unclear about that. And yet they chose to curate their own suitable version of the gospel. And Paul says they're full of hot air. <laughs> You're puffed up. He's going to talk about that again later. You're, you are full of hot air. Pride is the wind that inflates the ego. The spirit is the wind that humbles the ego. And Paul says, however, in verse 19, that when he comes, he'll know more about their puffed up words. He's going to hear more about this. 
But the problem, though, is that the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. They talk a big game. But does their life reflect the convictions of the gospel? This is a major problem today. Does their life reflect the convictions of the gospel? The true test of biblical fidelity is whether or not people are empowered by the Spirit and not their rhetorical abilities. It's easy to talk the talk, he says, but that's not how the kingdom works. Can you walk? Can you walk? In, in preparing for the next problem of sexual immorality, Paul asked them in verse 21, What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? The father doesn't need to use the rod because his children know the difference between shame and admonishment. Paul has always treated them with love and gentleness. He is their spiritual father. And in asking it this way, he wants them to take the time to do some self-reflection. It's a great question in parenting. The goal in parenting is to get to the heart. But you want to not just get to the heart. You want them to, in their own minds, start to articulate things. So you might lead them with questions. And they're oftentimes either rhetorical or you know, self-explanatory in that same way. But you want them to do some self-reflection. That's why Paul asks this here. Do you want me to come with a rod? Or would you prefer this? Well, obviously, we want that. We don't like your harshness. We want this, even though he just laid it on thick. But he wants them to be thinking here. And the question assumes that they're going to prefer the latter. Love, love tends to be concealed in chastening. And it's important, especially in parenting, when you correct a child, you're trying to help them understand that you love them because you do love them. But love, it's still love, even though it's chastening and correction. But love is very much revealed in gentleness as well which is far more preferred, he says. And it's still love, but the receiver needs to decide for himself how much prideful pushback he's going to give. That's why he asks this question. So how shall we then live? The tension here lies in the fact that the apostolic preachers of the gospel are still out there in the world bearing their cross each and every day. This is the tension. Paul and the Apollos, they're still out there doing the work. And yet, the immature Corinthian church has preceded them in eschatological glory. Meaning, they're, they're so wise that they have moved past the cross and the scriptures that testify to the cross. They're just so smart. They don't need scripture. We're brilliant. Their father is lowly, and the children have become kings. Paul is still bearing the consequences of Christian obedience and faithfulness but the Corinthians have transcended such things. Yet as a loving father, Paul wants them to see the truth, to stare into the face of the crucified Messiah that Paul serves each and every single day. Paul's life is marked by excruciating pain, difficulty, difficulty that none of us have maybe ever experienced, frankly. Read the list at the end of 2 Corinthians. Difficulty to... <laughs> understated. He's experienced rejection, his life put on the line, um, adversity, 
But you read those things and you think, yeah, that's just like Christ. That's just like Jesus. Excruciating pain, difficulty, rejection, adversity. But the Corinthian life was marked by ease, comfort, acceptance by the world, and prideful superiority. So what, is, what exactly is the disconnect here? The entire, this entire time, Paul has been calling on these wise, super important Corinthians to become weak in the eyes of the world, to renounce their social, uh, socially privileged positions. And he's called on them to stop imitating the world. Stop being like that. As a spiritual father, he calls on his children to follow the model, to stop trying to be liked by the world so much that they become pursuant of an easy life. And rather than imitating the world, which is completely antithetical to the gospel, Paul says to imitate him. He says, imitate me, which is to say, as I follow Christ, he's going to come in a few chapters and say the same thing. As I follow Christ, follow me. To the degree that I'm committed to the gospel, you should follow me in that. Paul's ways were Christ's ways, which demonstrated that Paul's apostolic authority, rooted in the scripture, is something to be followed and mimicked. They wanted status and recognition. Paul wants true kingdom power and obedience. They wanted notoriety. They wanted prestige. Paul wants faithfulness. So what do we do with a passage like this? Well, do you want to imitate Christ? Paul tells us how. And I have three ways from the text that teach us how to imitate Christ. The first one is easy. Do not go beyond the scriptures. If you want to imitate Christ, he says it very plainly here. Do not go beyond what is written. Do not go beyond the scriptures. To put some sarcastic bite on it for crying out loud, church, do not go beyond the scriptures. <laughs> and what I mean is, do not be tempted to think that there are places of authority in the world that are outside the reach of Christ's totalizing kingdom and the word of God. Stop pretending that there are places in the world where the Word of God has no business being in. The Scriptures teach us about God, about ourselves, about the world. The Scriptures give us an accurate understanding about uh, how we should live. And Paul says, do not go beyond this. There's a stopping point. Don't go past it. Do, don't add to the Word of God. Don't supplant it with philosophies and all of this stuff. Do not think that the Bible isn't sufficient for life and doctrine. When men fancy themselves to be quite clever, they will invariably rely on their own wisdom instead of scriptural authority. Do not give in to this temptation. Fight the enlightenment urge to establish your own reasoning as supreme. We'll go further in a more recent times, fight the existential urge to reason yourself into complete nihilism. That's what the world is doing. The world is running to their grave. We're saying, that's not the way to live. <laughs> the Bible says this, and many don't care what the Bible says, but we don't want to give in to that temptation. We don't want to follow the masses and say, well, you know, this seems like it's a good idea. What does the Bible say? And you will get regarded as hyper-fundamentalists, to which I say, I love it. <laughs> I like the fundamentals of the faith. Don't go beyond the scriptures. 
If you're going to follow Christ, you're going to have to obey his word. It's just what it means to be a Christian. And scripture is meant to transform the people of God. So don't go beyond it thinking that there's something better out there in the world. And when Paul says that the kingdom does not consist in talk or in words, but in power, what he means is that the power in this context is what is effective, not necessarily that which is spectacular. What is effective? How are how hearts changed? It's a difference between obedience and pragmatism. The power lies in what is effective, not in what's spectacular. And we like to dress the gospel up, right? We love, it's, it's that time of year where I have a little pit in my stomach because people are going to do Easter egg helicopter drops and I want to scream and yell church repent uh, like it's 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 that it's let's dress this up so that the world likes us and everyone today wants what is spectacular so they go chasing the current thing but true kingdom power is what transforms people it's the old ways of preaching the gospel confronting idolatry and building churches on the foundation of Christ and his word that is power Current things come and go, and there will be more current things. Remember, it's an election year, so buckle up. Lots of current things coming. Stay rooted in the scriptures. Number two, sacrificially live for the sake of others. <laughs> sacrificially live for the sake of others. Notice I didn't say just live for the sake of others. We live ultimately for the sake of Christ and his kingdom but we are also called on to this life of sacrifice, sacrificial living for the sake of others. The foundation of the church is Jesus Christ, and it is most certainly not a social construction built on men's ideas. As such, it can be tempting to want to live for one's own notoriety and supremacy. Listen, respectability from the world is a trap. Respectability from the world is a trap, and many pastors, many Christians are guilty of it. They simply want to be liked by the world, and so they will try everything to be respectable in their eyes. And they want, they want to be, many people want to be viewed as accepted by the culture. I don't want to be accepted by our culture. The news clip that went viral says, if you think our rights come from, come, come from God, then you are a Christian nationalist. The boogeyman right now for this election year. Abortion, Christian nationalism. So I guess we're all that. Because unless you think the state gives you rights, you've never heard that said here. <laughs> but they want to be, they want to appear righteous in the sight of men. They'll, they'll march in the march for life, but they won't actually confront the culture of death and start calling on their own church to repent. That type of thing. Men who want a level of respectability in the eyes of other men are those unfit for serving the kingdom. They're unfit. And oftentimes these types of respectable men or women will be all talk and no power. It's all talk and no power. They talk a good game, but they're always angling for something. And rather than sacrificing for others, they'll live for their own glory. They're legends in their own mind. It's like this Osteen clip, like you're destined for greatness. 
maybe you're destined to die preaching the gospel. And I'll tell you, you do not become the scum and grime of the earth by being nice to people. You also do not become humble by wanting to be liked. If you want to imitate Christ Jesus, you're going to have to imitate Christ. It's, that's how it works. Live sacrificially for the sake of others. Be willing to endure shame and contempt and wrath from the world by suffering with and for the sake of another. Uh, number three, imitate other wise and godly people. These are just three points from the text. Very simple. Imitate other wise and godly people. If you want to grow in your Christian walk, then find someone to help you and beg of them to teach you. Watch how they exercise self-control. Listen to how they talk. How do they make decisions? What rhythms of life do you need to mimic? How are they devoted to Christ? How do they love their wife and kids? Order your life accordingly. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Everyone needs a mentor, right? Find one. Listen to them. Be eager, be eager to amend your life so that it looks more like Christ. And finally, as a way of pulling all this together, please know that the gospel must be embodied. The gospel must be embodied. The obedience of faith is something that has tangible results in the world. We are not merely intellectuals who enjoy sound doctrine. That sound doctrine is supposed to impact us. It ought to change us. And when we, when we study the Bible, we pour ourselves out, we learn from godly people in order to make a difference in the world. And the prevailing philosophy of our culture is hedonism. It's hedonism. It's living to please oneself and oneself only. Most people think the highest good. Ask them next time you speak to someone. What do you think? <laughs> Go with the shorter catechism. What is man's chief end? <laughs> what is man's chief end? What is the reason for your existence? They think that their highest good, what is the highest good? It's living for one's own pleasure. That's it. And, and this is very, very tempting. And we must remember, however, that we live for another. We live for another. We live to serve King Jesus. We live to embody the cross each and every day. And this means that we will stop being, wanting to be liked by the world. We'll stop trying to please men and we'll start being bold for the kingdom. Holiness is not simply in Christian talk. It's in Christian walk. It's daily dying to self and living for Christ. And when Jesus said, and he commanded us to take up our cross and follow him, he meant to take up the call of self-denial. Our job is to manifest the, the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, our King. We manifest that in our living and in our personal walk, in our families, in our churches, in the world. And this is a real battle. The world of fallen sinful man versus the world of Jesus Christ and his total lordship. That's the battle. And this call, I'll tell you, it's not for wussies and wimps. It's just not. It's not for those who have a bit of pride and self-importance. This is a call to embody the cross as a way of living in the world, and, and it's how the victory of Christ is implemented. How did, how did the kingdom get implemented? Look at the cross. That's how it was implemented. The foolishness, the bloody, the scum of the earth, the jeering, the mocking, all of it, that is how it was implemented. And it's not going to be implemented in mere talk, but in power. 
Too much talking today. Social media made it worse. Way too much talking, not enough action, not enough power. The power that comes from men and women willing to swim upstream, to go against the grain, to be willing to be mocked and ridiculed and even tortured by the world, that is the call. And far too many Christians are comfortable in their apathetic uselessness. Worldly wisdom tells us to look out for ourselves, to be totally isolated from any sort of Christian witness. After all, we wouldn't, we wouldn't want the world to think that Christians actually believe their Bibles. We think discipleship is making others like us instead of making them like Christ. And listen, if you want to follow the crucified but risen and reigning king, then be willing to do the following, because this is what Paul did. Number one, live, you don't, might not want to write this down. I'm going to go fast, but I'll, if you want to know later, ask me. Live like criminals on death row being paraded in public. Two, be foolish and weak in the eyes of the world. You want to follow Christ? Those are required. Number three, suffering physically, possibly. Number four, grind it out to make sure your bills are paid. This is everything Paul said here. We're laboring with our hands, he says. Number five, bless and endure when the world throws insults at you. And number six, be treated like garbage. That's the way of the cross. And this is literally everything here. Don't come to Christ and follow Christ if you prefer to be left alone. Come to Christ to be forgiven and come to Christ to be enlisted in his active army. And remember, the enemy will always be shooting at you. You're already, the war's already going on. You just happen to get involved. They're shooting at you. But guess what? You have the sword of God's word to aid you as you walk with Christ. So if you want ease and comfort, I don't suggest worshiping a man who was beaten, tortured, spat upon, and crucified for all to see. And I'll leave you with these words. This is from Thomas Akempis. His book, The Imitation of Christ, was written in the early 1420s. He said this, Learn to obey you who are but dust. Learn to humble yourself, you who are but earth and clay, and bow down under the foot of every man. Learn to break your own will, to submit to all subjection. Be zealous against yourself. Allow no pride to dwell in you, but prove yourself so humble and lowly that all may walk over you and trample upon you as dust in the streets. That's the way of the cross. That's the implementation of victory. The world may, never, may walk all over us. That may be the case. But rest assured that it's a sign of Christ's victory because <laughs> he raises the dead. He will be victorious. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we glorify you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the challenge that we find here. And we ask and beg of you that your spirit would grant us the strength to be obedient to it. Help us to imitate you, Lord Jesus, to imitate your ways, to be bold and humble, courageous and responsible. Teach us how to be better at being the salt and light you have called us to be in this wicked and dark culture. Would you strengthen us and nourish us for the task at hand? Through Christ we pray. Amen. Amen.